0: Everybody, this is Perch, and I'm I'm here again with Joe Corallo. How are you doing? Hi, I'm all right, Perch. How are you? I'm doing great, and and we have the great privilege of being joined by Jim Zup today.
1: How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You know,
0: I, I I've been excited to talk to you for for a long time. Certainly about your work, and and I'm going to start in kind of a weird place. Um, I I want to just say I really appreciate your your site and your blog. You're one of the most um, I'm transparent i'm not sure if that's the right thing to you <laughs> lay out stuff that i'm i'm really thankful you do i,
1: I wish more people thanks yeah, yeah i so to give people i guess a little bit of background if they don't <laughs> know on my website which is jimzub.com i've got a lot of tutorials and over the last like eight or nine years i've posted up a lot of information on the financials of, of kind of comic creation, you know, how to pitch stories in ways that have worked for me and, and, you know, all kinds of this behind the scenes stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I didn't see a lot of that when I was getting going. And I feel like a lot of those questions are very common. And so I thought, a, this helps me to kind of organize it in my head and b, like, I'm a, when I'm not writing comics, I'm a teacher. So I'm a professor at this, uh, college called Seneca. I teach in their animation program. I actually used to, used to run the program as the coordinator. So I would do all the curriculum development, the, the organizing with the instructors and, and building stuff. It's all structure and, you know, trying to put structure to creative things, trying to plan things out in a way that feels logical to these students. And so I can't, kind of help it. Like, I always (laughs) want to organize and codify and kind of break things down into bite-sized pieces. And so when I finally started getting traction with my comic writing, I started doing the same kind of thing because people would tweet at me and they would ask me questions and I would realize, well, this is not whatever 140 characters. So I would write a little blog post. And in my head that was like, well, the good news is if I do it really well once, I never have to write it again. Like I just have mm-hmm. to send people that link. They go, "Well, how did you get your book and image or whatever?" Well, here's a thing about pitching, or here's what editors really want to see, or this is, you know, kind of the broader picture from my experience, and this is what I know about this thing. And so, um, you know, I just feel like that was a better use well, of my time. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's been really, honestly, very heartwarming uh, having. I have I, gotten dozens of comic creators over the years tell me that, you know, they figured stuff out because they read those posts or right. um, at conventions, they will bring me their books there, you know, and give me a book and, and tell me, you know, that I helped them on that path. And that means a lot to me. Uh, I just want people to make great stuff. I want them to make, you know, the books and the the projects that they're passionate about. And some of these pitfalls are so easy to avoid once you know what they are. And some of them seem like real common sense, but if you haven't gone through it, it, yeah. it isn't, you know?
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, image too, uh, with uh, Skull Kickers, how'd <laughs> you end up hooking uh, up with uh, Edwin? Because, um, uh, what was it? I uh, I know him through uh, Danny Luckert, who I used to uh, oh, self-publish okay. comics with, and they both went to SVA together. So that's how nice. I knew him, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, Skull Kickers really did changed the kind of course of my career. Like before that, I was working in comics. Like my first comic stuff was honestly web comics. Mm -hmm. It feels weird because they're very different kind of periods of my creative career. And some people know me from each one. So Mm -hmm. like 2001, I I graduated school. I was working in animation. And the job was very you know, toiling away on, on traditional animation stuff and things like that. And so in the evenings, I started doing a webcomic for fun. It's just like, hey, this is my own creative project. I have more control over and things I want to do. Um, you know, like hand built the website and just started posting these little pages up three times a week. And at the time, 2001, like webcomics were really coming into their own, you know, PVP and Penny Arcade. And there were a lot of people doing these very newspaper style strip um comics and i was doing like a narrative like i had a dramatic story that i wanted to tell and so it was very different than what a lot of other people were doing and after a couple months like three or four months of it um scott mcleod reached out to me and he was like hey this is really the way he reached out was hilarious i i was stopping for christmas and it's hard to explain some of this stuff to people like the nascent internet right Mm -hmm. you know at the time there weren't even RSS feeds or things like that. Like if people stopped coming to your website or they didn't think you were updating anymore, you were dead in the water. Right. And so you would post updates and you would, even if you didn't have a new piece of art, you'd be like, no, no, there's stuff coming Friday come back oh, or whatever. It's live. Yeah. right besides i'm not dead you know um <laughs> and i posted an update that said i'm going to take a two-week break for the holidays please come back in january i know sometimes i don't update as much as i should but i'm trying to like that classic just <laughs> self you know destructive kind of artist nerves whatever mm-hmm. and and scott emailed me and he said the strip's great don't get uptight. You're doing fine. And I was just like, Oh my God, Scott McCloud just emailed me. And so I emailed him right back and he sent me his phone number and we jumped on a call and he was just delightful. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever met Scott or interacted with him. Mm -hmm. He's like everyone's comic book uncle. He's the greatest, Mm -hmm. so supportive and so like non-judgmental. like whatever you're making, he's happy to see it. He just wants more people making stuff. And that was like my template for encouraging and, and joyous kind of comic creation. And so we, um, he introduced me to some other people who were making stuff on the web and, and you know um, we started talking back and forth. And then Scott said, man, I really feel like web comics are coming into their own in 2002. Um, You know, you got to come to, you got to come to San Diego comic-con. And I was like, there's no, there's no way I can go to comic-con. That's insane. Like I don't have a badge. I don't have anywhere to stay. I can't afford a flight. Like at the time I, I hadn't been out of school very long. I had debts up to my eyeballs and Mm -hmm. you know, a freelancing like it just wasn't gonna be possible and then slowly but surely we knocked down the dominoes. Scott, this is a different time. I have to try and explain this. Scott got me a pro badge just by asking for yeah. one. Yeah, no, like, Jim, yeah. yeah, Jim's a Jim's a professional and they went, Oh, all right. <laughs> and they put me on the pro list because <laughs> Scott McLeod said so. Yeah. And then, you know, he introduced me to a group of people who were getting their start and some of them lived in San Diego and they were like, Yeah, we got craft space on our couch. Now you got somewhere to stay. And I was like, okay, two down. I still can't go. And I I was trying to explain this to my brother. We grew up big comic book fans and everything else. And he was just like, I can't believe... Uh, this is happening. I'm like, well, it's not happening. I'm not going, you know, it's cool. Everyone's being super nice, but there's no way I can do this. I'm not even making money on this webcomic or anything. And my brother called up my dad and he said, Jim's got a career opportunity and he's not going to take it. You have to help him. (laughs) Uh And uh, so my dad bought my plane ticket to San Diego and, and I flew down there and this is the internet where people are like, You met someone on the internet? How do you know they're not going to kill you or (laughs) fuck your body at the side of the road, you know? So geo is very safe. Right? And so I'm flying to a city to meet people I haven't met before. Someone says they're going to pick me up at the airport. I don't know what they look like because there's no smartphones. Like, it was just weird, you know, Uh, but Amazing.
0: That feels like a charming time. Uh, it was.
1: It was. Uh, it was incredible. And so, uh, someone picks me up at the airport and takes me around the city, and I crash on someone's couch. And like, it was wild. It was an amazing, uh, you know, week. And I got to meet all sorts of really wonderful people very supportive and it was like man comics this is so cool and one of the things i loved about scott was he was so non-judgmental when i met him in person i walked over to his table and he was having a conversation with chris claremont Mm -hmm. and i knew exactly what chris looked like so i was like oh damn and 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 uncanny x-men in the 80s is my gold standard for like great serialized entertainment and and drama like the purest kind of version of the comics that i grew up on and i was a little starstruck and like oh geez and scott looks up sees my badge and goes oh jim and he goes come on over here and he introduces me to chris but he does this like chris you know jim's work Chris Claremont is looking at my badge, looking at me with this, like kind of a little bit fear in his eyes, like, oh crap, I don't know who this guy is. And he goes, I'm I'm really sorry. I haven't had the pleasure. And I'm like, no, Mr. Claremont, there's no possible way you would know who I am. Uh, Scott's just being very nice. And Scott goes, now, Jim, don't you talk down about your work. You're you're making comics. We're all comic creators here. And that, I mean, that was the baseline, you know, incredible
0: stories we've ever heard.
1: Right. It was so good. It was so amazing. (laughs) It it was incredibly uh, amazing. So a really cool week. Um, I, you know, I ended up uh, going back home and just being like electrified. Like I wanted to make more comics. I wanted Mm -hmm. to do more stuff. And when my animation job at the time, I was in Halifax, Nova Scotia, kind of wrapped up there. I moved back home to Toronto. I didn't move back home, but I moved back to Toronto. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And I started working with the Udon studio. Yeah. So one of the guys I went to school with, <clears throat> he was already there, Omar Dogan, and he was doing artwork on a bunch of, like, at that time, Udon was sort of like a little bit of everything. They were doing yeah. a lot of artwork for Marvel. They were doing a lot of coloring. They were doing a bunch of ad artwork and design work, uh, video game and toy design stuff, a little bit of animation storyboarding. It was just like this kid studio. Yeah. 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 And the majority of the gang were in Toronto proper, and we literally worked out of eric co's parents house because his parents lived in hong kong but they had a house in toronto and eric one of his duties was to make sure the place didn't fall apart while they were gone like 10 months of the year and so we just kind of had the studio in the basement there and so there was like a big screen tv and a pool table and like f- f- 10 drafting tables and a bunch of computers and you know, Eric paid the power bill and the internet bill and everyone just worked on stuff. Wow. And right in the midst of that, they got the license to do the street fighter comics. Yep. And that was when the studio kind of really flexed and and started building stuff on their own.
0: They got to ride that first kind of manga wave a little bit. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, artists, artists, you know, from the studio, like Arnold Sang and, and Alvin Lee went on to very big, you know, kind of things like, uh, Arnold is the lead character designer on Overwatch, mm-hmm. you know, like Alvin yeah. is working for on league of legends and like the studio okay. had this incredible, you know, lineup of artists over the years. And we got to work with Capcom and the more the comics that we did, the more they trusted us to work on toy design stuff and video game art and design work. And then the relationship got so good that we started publishing their art books in English, And that turned into a whole other part of the company where we became a publisher. And now that's what Udon's known best for is manga and art books. And so while Eric was sort of managing the publishing end of things, I would eventually move on to become a project manager for creative services, as we called it. So it was Mm -hmm. custom comics and ad illustration and design work, movie, concept art, all kinds of different things. And I learned so, so much on an editorial level and an art directing level and a project managing level when I was there. And it was like the best like comic education or publishing education I could have ever had because I learned how conventions work. I learned how editorial work. I learned how pre-press worked. It was all this... Not the sexy stuff, not the creative stuff, but it was still very valuable, you know, and it, and it changed the way I looked at the business. Yeah.
0: Do you think, Joe and I have talked with a lot of people, and one of the kind of recurring themes that we get is the, the kind of this, this split of... A decent amount of mentorship and teaching, mm-hmm. and kind of learning mm-hmm. the business—not just the one niche part of the business you're in, right? Right. Other parts, and then kind of one of the transformations that happened, and we're trying to put our finger on it. But over the last twenty years, there seems like a lot of that is in short supply.
1: Yeah, and- I think I think it's easy to look at the current system and say that there's people aren't getting that education because. Because it's so diffused, with the people are are working more remotely. Do you know what I mean? It used to be, you know, in the eighties or seventies, sixties, you had to be in New York City, right? So you were going to get mentorship because you knew the guy who knew the guy who was going to introduce you to the editor or what.
0: Osmosis kind of does, right? right? Yeah, yeah.
1: And so now it's like there are little pockets of knowledge, but you're right that it's not being disseminated out quite the same way. Um, Yeah.
0: it's again, I, I, I you know, and, and I apologize to keep going back to it, but your, no. your blog and the things you've done. I mean, I, I have vivid memories in uh, 2019 Emerald City Comic Con sitting with two, you know, the names uh, creators, I, I shouldn't say here. And we're looking at your, your blog post about taxes. And right.
1: it, <laughs> the most mean, stuff, yeah. Yeah. But I'm like, you, this
0: is important. We're, we're having a little argument. <laughs> and I pulled up your website. and oh I'm like, No. Here's
1: this a, some guy cheese. talks about taxes. Get ready for the excitement. Yeah, it's right?
0: just, we, we, we have some whiskey and now we're going to talk about why you guys need to do what's but, being But the involved. thing is,
1: I wouldn't post about this stuff if I didn't get so many questions about it or if yeah. people didn't yeah. seem so out of their depth on it. Like, I would work with some of these artists at Udon, and a lot of them were very responsible and reasonable. But every so often we get a freelancer who's very talented on a, on a creative artistic level and they were just a complete mess financially. Yeah, and yeah. not because they couldn't, like they just couldn't hold on to money and it would be tax time and they would be freaking out. And we're like, didn't you put money aside all year? And they were like, no man, I've got a gym membership and I did this and I did that. And I was like, well, there's your problem. Mm -hmm. Well, can you guys advance me? You know? So then and I was just like, this is brutal. Like, why aren't you doing this thing? Or, you know, aren't you writing off the stuff you buy? And they're like, just completely, you know, bamboozled. No, they that think was- that that's a well, a business expense must mean you're a business. You're like, you are a freelance artist. That is a business, <laughs> you know. Like, it, and and just people not knowing what they're supposed to be doing on that front, you know. Well, yeah,
0: and it's hard not to get frustrated i mean i I, and i know that i sometimes let the frustration kind of see through i'm like come on you gotta know this you you gotta know this you're
1: i think it's easy on the other end of it as always it's Mm -hmm. easy on the other side like i i i try one of the when you're teaching and i teach a new set of students you know every eight to twelve months and they come in the door there are moments where you're teaching those basic lessons again drawing lessons but also organizational lessons and and good methodology in terms of communication and all that stuff. And you think to yourself, why do they never get it? You go, no, this is the first time they've heard it. You yeah. know? Yeah. In my head, I'm like, God, oh, these, these kids never get it. You're like, no, this is a completely new set of students. And you have to kind of roll your own brain back to that yeah, mentality exactly. and go, look, I have to be exuberant and excited about teaching them and bringing them into good, you know, proper habits and all that kind of stuff and and show them why it matters. Because I think one of the other big mistakes is that people will say, do it like this. Mm -hmm. And the response is why? Well, for these reasons, or here's an anecdote that makes it very clear what is on the other side of doing it wrong. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and the more professional examples you can give them, the more it will stick in their head because it's no longer an abstract of, yes, yes, do what you're told. You know, I'll be a mindless drone. It's like, no, you want to avoid this bad situation. And therefore, you know, that's why you do it this way. And so it's weird. It's a weird thing, uh, you know, and then to translate those habits to my own professional career. That's it's tough. You know,
0: I mean it is. I, I just I appreciate the data and and there is so much bad information out there. I think sure. there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out the comic industry, uh, they don't have insight. So right. they can kind of make up their own theories and it's very easy to get a very warped view. You yes. you go to your comic shop. Hey, there's there's 100 copies of this one comic on the shelf. It must mean that uh, the comic shop retailer was tricked somehow
1: and they're right. or, or the opposite end of it where someone is like well if this book's still being published they might mu- everyone must be making oodles of money or right. you know, mm-hmm. exactly like, yeah it, or just because you're working on a major character for a major company you must be making tons of money yeah. mm-hmm. and it's like potentially yes but you know your financial situation can vary wildly, you know, and it's not to say that I am poor because I am not, you know, I'm not banging a tin cup or anything like that. Comics have been very good to me. Mm -hmm. I think it also gets awkward because people look at some of those blog posts where I'm talking about my creator own book, just barely getting by or being in the red for years. And they're like, why would you do this? And it's like, I, you're looking at one chunk of data in isolation. Yes. Like, so Skull Kickers is a perfect example of that. And mm-hmm. I, this is where I was sort of, perfect. we, we need to get to anyways, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I was at Udon, I was project managing, and I enjoyed the work, but it is also very, I don't want to say soul crushing, because that's not the proper description. Sure. It's hard. You are making stuff for other people on their timeline, on their budget, to their spec. And right. you're doing this relentlessly with very little creative input. You know, particularly if you're the project manager. So you're the go-between. And the most communication you get is when things go wrong. You know, when things run smoothly, you're kind of invisible. When you're doing your job extensively, that's when you're trying to make repairs or fix things or furiously work behind the curtain so you can step out and make it look easy. right? Right? And so I learned a ton but I was not being really creative anymore. Just tiny little pockets of, oh, they need this. They're not sure what they want. And then you provide that little bit of creative structure. Or you say, what if we did it this way? Or they go, we don't know what art style we want. And we go, well, what about this cool stuff? And they get really excited. And then you just get those little sparkles. And you go, remember when you did creative stuff, yeah. <laughs> Remember when you wanted to make things. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh man, I can feel this, this, detritus building up and frustration, not because of anything anyone is doing wrong, but because I'm not activating that part of myself anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. I had been years since the web comic had wrapped up. I was making really good money as a project manager uh, at Udon and I, and paying down all my debts and down payment on a house and like all those things you're all supposed good, to responsible things. Yes. I'm a responsible adult in a creative career, no less. Yeah. You know, the teaching stuff started up and I started off part time and then that built to a point where they really wanted me to stick around um, to help administrate the program. So all mm-hmm. of a sudden I have these two kind of parallel careers going, but neither of them are hyper creative. You know what I right. mean? Right. And so I was sort of desperately beneath the surface kind of, What am I going to do? When am I going to get this thing going? One of the artists I worked with was this guy, Chris Stevens, and he's an amazing illustrator. He does a lot of uh, cover art now, but he does a lot of just um, um, commission work and things like that. He was doing a lot of role-playing game artwork. He He and I had done a bunch of work at Udon together, and he was approached by Joe Keating, I believe, to do a short story for Pop Gun popcorn was that image anthology. And it was sort of this like brick, real big, thick book full mm-hmm. of short stories. Some of them were as short as a page. Other ones were like eight, ten pages and what may have you. And, and so he contacts me cause he had been doing a lot of work with me and I was giving him a last steady work at Udon. And he said, to, you know, this editor at image got in touch with me. And they want me to do something for an anthology. I was like, yeah, it's great, man. He goes, am I allowed to? I'm like, Hey, you're not on an exclusive with us. Like as long as you're not, missing deadlines, do what you want to do. And, and we were chatting back and forth. I said, you know, this will be fun. He's like, great, man. I'll let you know how it goes. I'll send you some of the art. I'm like, I'd love to see it. And like a day later, he calls me and he goes, they want me to make up whatever I want. They don't have a script for me and I was like that's amazing. What are you going to do? And he's like I have no idea. And so over the phone we started chatting and we kind of brainstormed up a thing and I just and, and at the end of the phone call he was laughing and I said yeah do something like that. And it was like a fantasy story but kind of um you know self-deprecating and ridiculous and sarcastic cuz he didn't want to do your standard kind of uh uh you know medieval fantasy thing. Mhm. And then a a day or two after that, he contacts me again. And he goes, I tried to make the story, put it together. And it was way funnier when you said it on the phone. Do you just want to write it? And I was like, yeah, man, that'd be cool. And that night I just like voraciously poured myself into this script. And I was like, this is so much fun. I love, this is what I've always wanted to do. Just write Mm -hmm. cool comic stories. Mm -hmm. So we did a 10 page story. He did it fully digitally painted. Hmm. Right. We sent it on to Joe. Joe was uh, just over the moon on it, thought it was great, showed it around to everyone at Image. And Eric Larson, who was publisher at the time, reached out and was like, this looks awesome. You you guys should keep doing this stuff. And we were mm-hmm. like, oh, that would be great. And uh, Chris is amazing, amazing artist, but he would have these periods of incredible um, productivity. And then, you know, like his own, Like he would have, have problems and, you know, life problems and financial problems and all kinds of different stuff was getting in his way. And so he contacted me and he said, that was an amazing experience. I don't think I can do it again. And I was like, what do you mean? They want us to do more. They're going to do another volume of popcorn. We've got to. And he's like, I don't, I don't have it in me, man. That almost killed me. That was so much work. And I was like, no, but look how good it is. And look how great we did on it. And um, he was like, well, I can't do 10 pages. I was like, "Do you can you do three? And he's like, you can't tell a story in three pages. I'm like, want to bet? <laughs> and so I put together um, a, a short story for Pop Gun Volume 3 that was a three-page story that he did. And that got him really pumped, and he was really excited about it. And so we contacted Eric and said, can we pitch a miniseries? And Erica's like, just send it to me. So I put together the pitch that weekend. Chris did some character sketches. And within a couple of weeks we had a green light at image yeah. and, and I t- couldn't believe it. You know, I was over the moon. And That's I was, one of the faster track projects I've heard. Yeah, it was wild. And so I thought this is going to be amazing. And then we just slammed into a brick wall because um, Chris, was, you know, doing a a full monthly book is incredibly difficult. There's no way we were going to be able to do it fully painted. So we were going to have to change up the style. It was going to be more line art. We're going to bring in a colorist and the whole 10 yards. So we had to kind of source that stuff out. But on top of all that, Chris needed to make enough money to pay, you know, keep the lights on, but also do a, a, you know, get enough, work done and it just wasn't coming together you know uh, there were all sorts of other things going on in his life and they were totally reasonable and I had no problem with that it was just okay you know an image has a very once you're on the system it's like well you tell us when you're ready and we'll solicit it and I knew enough I knew the publishing end of it we couldn't just have one issue done and then you know fall off a cliff I wanted to have two or three in the can minimum so that for a five issue miniseries we weren't going to fail. Yeah.
0: You weren't going to try and recreate like 1993. And- right. Right. You're exactly. Capable.
1: Yes. If, right. You know, And I was like, I know this stuff. I've seen it from the other side and I know how frustrating it is as a reader. So we just kept kicking the can down the road and it was like, I don't think this thing's ever going to get done. Like, you know, it's taken us months and months and months and we don't even have one issue in the can. And so we hit a point where I, you know, kind of had a heart to heart with Chris and said, I don't think this is happening. And he was like, Yeah, I don't think it's happening either. And I just put it in a drawer and it was like, we're never doing this book. And it was heartbreaking, but, you know, that just seemed like the way it was going to roll. And then months later, um, Edwin was a really big fan. Edwin Huang was a really big fan of the Udon gang and the Street Fighter artwork. And he voraciously collected the books and he reached out to the studio to show his portfolio. And I was, as the project manager, I was the guy getting all those portfolios and giving people the, you know, feedback. Usually the standard cut and paste (laughs) response of, thank you, we're not currently looking for anyone or whatever. And I looked at his stuff and his samples were good. He was making a couple really classic mistakes, like not leaving enough room for dialogue or, you know, but the actual panel-to-panel storytelling was solid. The drawing was solid. This kid, and he was, he was like 19 had total potential and so i responded to him with a you know real letter like this is great please uh you know can i give you some feedback and he was voraciously excited yes 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 and i said look you, you know are you working from a script because i i don't know how much dialogue on this page but there is no, you could barely fit a mm-hmm. single word balloon on this page you put there and he goes oh no i'm just making up the story as i go along and i was like you need to work from a real script and he said well can you send me a Street Fighter script. And I'm like, I'm not allowed to send you any of our work for hire stuff. That's all internal. Literally the only script that I have is Skull Kickers. And so I said, I can send you this script if you want to see how a script is put together. And I can send you the first half of the pages that are drawn and you can get a feel for how this guy Chris works and just you know learn from it. Yeah, And and they were all penciled, but none of it was inked. And he said, well, I need to practice my inking. Do you mind if I ink some of these pages on my own? You know, I'll send them the high-res scans or whatever. And I said, fill your boots, man. Like, go for it. And so, like, two weeks later, he'd inked half the book, and he'd started penciling the second half. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) what is going on? Like, what is going on? This is crazy. Like, I love the initiative. Yeah, it was incredible. And so all of a sudden, I'm getting pages again, and he's sending me thumbnails, and this is you know how he wants to put together the back half of the book. And I was like, um, okay, okay, I mean, this is great. And so we got on a phone call for the first time. I talked to him on the phone, and I was so nervous because I wanted to ask him to be the regular artist on the book because I, had, I actually sent the pages to Joe Keating, and Joe was like, oh, my God, Chris is drawing again. I said, this isn't Chris this is this other kid, this guy, Edwin, you know, and it was crazy. And, yeah. and, and so uh, I get on the phone with Edwin and Edwin's super nervous and I'm super nervous. And we talk about other stuff. And then all of a sudden Edwin goes, if you wanted me to finish the rest of the book, I'd be really proud to do it. And I was like, Oh my God, that's all I want you to do. <laughs> like, will you be the artist on this book? And he said, so here's the funny part. I talked to my teacher cause he was still in school. And he said, they're okay with me making this my final project. Everything's winning here. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so all of a sudden we were back in production. I called Chris up and I said, I've got an artist. He's like, oh, thank God. I felt so guilty. And I said, will you do covers? And he said, it'd be my pleasure. And I was like, great we were back on and so by that time eric larson was no longer publisher at image eric stevenson was mm-hmm. and i was so nervous that eric stevenson was gonna shut us down because i don't know after everything's
0: falling in place yeah what-
1: And so I contact Eric Stevenson so nervous and I'm like, hey, Eric, look, I know, you know, this isn't your project, but Larson liked it and we've been, had this bump and it's been probably a year since I sent anything, but here's a bunch of stuff. And is this cool? You know, let me know if there's anything else you need. And I got this like real short and sweet little, yeah, man, we'll get you on the schedule. And I was just like, holy crap, we're making a (laughs) comic, you know? And I had made so many comics and, and projects I UDON, on, but there was this different level. There was this sense of this is mine. This is ours. We own it and we control it. And it's going to be exactly what we want, you know?
0: And it would go for a while. Like, So you, did I hear you right? You said that it was like five issues. Was it was supposed
1: it was- to be five <laughs> issues. Yeah. And we, we lucked out. Our timing was really quite fortuitous because we were at image was going through a bit of a Renaissance, right? Like, Chew would come out and morning glories and a couple other titles in and around there, um, that were getting buzz. Walking dead was definitely like, it was a TV show. It was just, it hadn't premiered yet. So everyone was on this sense of like, the next hot thing is going to be an image book. And so Mm -hmm. all these image number ones were selling very well for completely unknown creators. People were getting really hyped about indie books again. And, and we were riding this wave. And so, you know our initial orders on that first issue i think initial orders were like don't quote me on this i think they were like 4000 copies and then between that and foc we we got like 7 or 8000 copies like almost double Wow! and eric was like 8000 is not great but considering where you started and no one knows who you are that's amazing like yeah. good on you you know and this you'll be able to survive as a mini and then get the trade out and that's the important part.
0: You also seemed, I think, it benefited uh, the. Um, I may have the timing a little bit wrong here, but RPG kind of content was starting to also. not I don't want to say become cool, but it was it was getting
2: in people like sick. critical role and stuff like that. Oh made, no, no, this uh, is you know, pre
1: like this is two thousand ten, right? So this oh is yeah, important. it's a little early. Man. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. early on that. There's not even a lot of fantasy comics in the market at that time. Like there's some, but there's not very many. I yeah. laugh because. IDW launched their their Dungeons & Dragons series with John Rogers writing it. And I was mm-hmm. like, I just want to sell more than D&D, which was never going to happen. But in my head, I was like, wouldn't that be cool? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we launched, and the book instantly sold out, and we did a second printing, and that instantly sold out, and we did a third printing. And it was like, okay, here we go. Like, it's it's happening. <laughs> okay. And so as soon as we got that momentum, and we did like, two or three printings of issue two. Mm-hmm. We did two printings of issue three. Eric was like, do you want to keep this going? And I said, yes. And so yeah. we instantly went into a format where we were going to be an ongoing because um, we had never announced it was a miniseries. We had just said number one, you know,
0: ah. yes, um, the, the publisher stealth approach. The, right. Yes, and so
1: issue six, I put together anthology style with a bunch of my friends doing short stories. So we could just stay monthly and then, you know, by the time six came out, seven was ready and we were able to keep it going. Wonderful. Um, and so it wasn't monthly all the way through and we would end up having gaps later on just because of freelancing stuff and production and what may have you. But we did 34 issues yeah. of, of Skull Kickers over the course of those five years. And five or six trades, right? Out of six, that? Trades, six, six trades. Six trades, yeah. yeah. And that book you know, put me on the map in a whole different way because it proved to people I could be a writer, not just the project manager guy. And Mm -hmm. that I, you know, I could write this book and put out a quality product on time. And at Image, I got a really good rep because I had done pre-press and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Most of the books that go through Image go to their design team. And you generally want to have as close to a final book as possible, but there's always little hitches and and sure. you know stuff that needs to get nudged and ready. And I knew all that stuff because I had been helping to do that at Udon. So I could give them a turnkey finished book. And so Image was like, oh, if Jim's on it, it you barely have to look at it. Like it's already going to be in all the specs we like, on the templates we like, color corrected and good to go. And so at Image, I was just like n- no hassle. And so I feel like even though financially the book was always riding this razor's edge, it was image was doing great as a whole. And they were like, but the book comes in on time and everyone's, you know, likes it internally as well. And so we were never like a, a drag on the system. If that makes sense.
0: Oh no, completely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think people, there's a lot of misunderstandings I think about image and, and right. how they sit and how they fit. and And if you can get into this sweet spot where you're not, you're not pulling them backward, it's, right? It's, so it's a yeah. That's kind of your first big win.
1: And we weren't. We also weren't. We weren't getting an advance or anything like that. So we weren't a financial drag on them. You know, yeah. as long as we could cover our printing costs, we were kind of you know value neutral. Yep. but it was another title coming out in around that time and the trade actually you know uh Eric convinced me to go 999 on the first trade and those 999 trades were flying like the print runs were huge for yeah. us yeah. you know and so we weren't making good money on the trade but we were getting in a lot of locations and we were getting on a lot of we ended up on one of those like teen reading lists and stuff like that cuz and the particular review we got said this is for You know, boys who don't think they want to read, Mm -hmm. and because it was fun, slam bam kind of entertainment stuff. And so we got good library pulls. We got good coverage in stores we are getting
0: crossovers into different kinds of conventions I mean Gen Con places like that are promoting exactly a good
1: friend of mine was already doing Gen Con really regularly and so when the second trade came out I got an introduction from uh, Tracy Hickman the Mm -hmm. fantasy author and he shared a booth with a good friend of mine and that year just luck of the draw Tracy didn't have a book coming out so it's like san diego if you ever give up your booth space it's gone forever you'll never get yeah. it back yep. and so they would uh, they were going to ride this booth real on the razor's edge of profitability but they'd do much better if they had a third that year and so howard contacted me my buddy howard taylor and he said you know come do you want to be one third of our booth uh at gen con and i was like oh my god he's like you know huge D D audience you'll do real well with skull kickers i'm like how many copies should i bring and he said how many can you bring And I said, well, the most I've ever sold at one convention was when we launched the first trade at Emerald City. We sold 200 copies or something like that. And he was like, bring 300 copies. And I was like, we will never sell 300 copies of the trade. And he said, you're driving down. Just throw them in your trunk. I was like, okay. And so I went down and Gen Con's four days. Yep, And it was, was, I I don't want to over dramatize it but it felt like it was viral the first day we sold terrible like i think i might have sold 20 copies and i thought mm-hmm. well you know that ain't bad and then the next day the way Gen con works is people go to that show to play games right. but when they're waiting for their next game they're just sitting around chatting or they're browsing or they're shopping or they're waiting in line to do demos or things like this they're waiting in line they got that book they pull it out and they read it and they start laughing and they're like, this is great. And so people in line are like, what are you reading? You've also got to keep in mind, most role-playing game books are $20, 30 $40. I had a $10 trade. Yep. And so I would have people come to my table on the second day, and they were like, I read this. I love it. I want to buy copies for my players. How much is it? Again, at 10 bucks? Okay, 50 is yep. like, bucks is five copies. And I'm like, 50 bucks is five copies. And so the next day, we sold more. And the next day, we sold more. And on the last day, I sold out. Yeah. And we were just like, oh, my God. And, like, when's the next one coming out? I'm like, well, I got two out uh, now. I'll be back next year, hopefully. And we all went out for dinner at the end of the weekend. And Tracy said, let's just make it the three of us next year, too. Yeah. And I've been at Gen Con ever since. You know?
0: You know, um, not to take us outside of comics for a moment, but what you just described there, uh, so many people are – you just hear the struggle of, we need a new audience. We need to yeah. get comics into other hands, the direct market, the comic shops. There, there is an audience there, and that's great. But we The
1: gaming to- audience, the gaming, tabletop gaming, board gaming, mm-hmm. and role-playing have done a phenomenal job at handing the torch to the next generation. Yeah. Because getting into it feels like something you can do with the family, and yeah. it feels like something you can carry on and hand over to the kids. Which and they've done a out. phenomenal job. What's that? Which comics seems to struggle with more. For too. Yeah. I think comics seems to have a chip on its shoulder. They don't want to make kid content at the big two regularly, right. and they don't want to promote it in those circles, and they don't feel like it is... I don't want to speak for all the people. Obviously, there are people well, with there right. that want to do it. Yeah. But it feels like they're so uptight about being taken seriously that they forget that their core audience needs to be... 10, 12, 13, 15-year-olds. Do you yes. know what I mean? Yeah. Instead of 20, 30, 40-year-olds. And I say but, that as a 40-plus, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, but yeah.
2: like, Marvel and DC, I mean, Marvel used to do YA all the time. It was called yeah. Amazing Spider-Man, right? X-Men, Absolutely. The Avengers. And then, you know,
1: there would be some contentious content that you would feel like you were... I mean, it felt like a bit like Forbidden Fruit, where you were like, "This. Yeah. what is that cool word Stanley is using? I'm going to look it up in the dictionary. Mm-hmm. Or what is this you know, the drug issue of Amazing Spider-Man or, or, you know, like they would hit these topics hard right. occasionally, or, you know, you would see more complex stuff, but that made you feel like you were an older kid, which is exactly what a younger kid wants. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The, you, you know, can't
1: talk down to the audience that, that yeah. never works. It never works.
0: I mean, Uncanny X-Men is Dark Phoenix Saga run, which got a lot right. of people into comics. A lot yeah. of kids. I mean, you did have that, that feeling of most of it is definitely Y A, and then right. they go to the Hellfire Club and like, oh, what are people run- running the, around? The Kitty bother?
1: Pride was your way in, like, right. every, You know, every every thirteen year old kid has a crush on Kitty Pride because they exactly. imagine that they're on the X Men with with this yeah. cute girl or whatever. You know, like, How I don't do know. know. It felt like it was yeah. really um, a way in. And Amazing yeah. Spider Man was my favorite. I started yeah. voraciously collecting that. I collect. I mean, my first Marvel comic was GI Joe.
0: Yep. Like, so that's others. for so many. Uh,
1: but, uh, you yeah. know what they did? It, at the end of those episodes of G.I. Joe, they would have the credits, and then right before the Hasbro logo, they would spin the latest cover of the comic and they would say, Buy the Marvel comic. And, yes. would say, yes, master. Yes. and then you would go <laughs> do what they said. Yep. Like, it was, I'm sure they had to stop doing it because it was probably. Yeah. Something, you know, to well, it
0: something it, for it yeah. years the yeah. did it too and, yeah, yeah. And it, it's yeah. one of those people like why don't they advertise comics in these things they did and it was yeah. successful it was right. yeah.
2: but they something happened along the way too because because the same thing like w- growing up uh, I, i'm i'm a little younger not that much younger but it, right. you know i grew up you know with like the batman cartoon the X-Men cartoon, and that got me to get into... uh, Oddly enough, Sonic the Hedgehog from Archie Comics got me into... Hey, whatever
1: works. That's not right at
2: all. A lot of people,
1: as much as the Turtles were a thing for a Mm -hmm. lot of us, the the Archie Turtles comic brought tons of people in the door. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. but something happened. I, I don't know where... And I mean, this has always happened, but it seems more intense now, of thinking that stuff for kids or YA or middle grade is the only thing kids want is to be stuck in school with these characters. Right. Like I hated that. I wanted to read about adults. I wanted to do adult things. I
1: liked the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and I liked the family dynamic. I liked those things. They made you feel like you were older. Do you know what I mean? Which is what every kid wants rather than talking down to them. Yes. I liked teenage characters as well. Yeah you know, I liked whatever new warriors and all those things as they came out, but you know, teen Titans, all that sort of stuff. I think you need to speak to the audience, you know, in a way that treats them fairly and gives them the drama. That was my plan. We're jumping way ahead. So we're probably gonna have to roll back. And that was my plan on champions. When, when Tom Brevoit offered me champions, Mark Mm -hmm. Wade was writing the book and he was writing it with a, uh, view in terms of a younger audience that had captured a certain audience and tom said to me you know mark's doing his thing and that's fine you don't have to do that thing and i don't necessarily want you to do that same thing i don't need you to try and be mark and i said i, I can't be mark and i won't i i see this like i want to do you know perez wolfman like i want to do teen titans and he said bang i'm totally down with that do teen titans like classic dramatic intense And so you can see the shift. Like as soon as I take over on champions, we dig in on drama, we dig Mm -hmm. in on character. And like, I start making, I start putting characters through the meat grinder Mm -hmm. and a certain portion of the audience hated it because they're like, why do you hate these characters? I'm like, I don't hate these characters. I'm building drama. Like I'm making things hard on them because in order to prove that they're worthy heroes, you have to make it hard you know what I mean? If, if you treat them with kid gloves, they're not real Marvel heroes, you know? So to me, it's like, we got to, I crush them because I love them. I know that sounds weird or whatever, but but my mistake with that was in, in retrospect, I leaned into that so hard. The audience that was reading champions, some of them dug it. I mean, we didn't, our sales weren't completely apocalyptic, but some of them dug it, but a portion of them said, this is not for me. This guy hates Sam Alexander. He hates Riri Williams. He hates Miles Morales, Kamalo, whoever, whoever was getting getting beat that issue because we were making it hard. Mm-hmm. And the audience that I felt we could capture, that read Perez Wolfman or would dig it, they'd already in their mind yep. given up on the book that would they would never try it. And so my mistake was thinking I could capture them and hold the current audience. And we couldn't because the people had already written it off that the people that grew up on the books I did had already decided they weren't going to read it if they ever tried it. And the people that, you know, were reading it. They were like, why are you such an asshole? Like, why are you, why are you, you know, yeah. that's a, I mean, we're talking deep in my Marvel career now. So oh, we've, dear. we've no. no, this is good. Yeah, a, it, I
0: I'm like, like it when the conversation just goes where it needs to go. Um, it's, you yeah
1: um let's I, I mean and yet we still to this day i have some absolute ardent fans of that run and really? i have people who are picking up the trades now because they love kamala and miles and all those characters and they're like why the hell have i never seen this before this is crazy this is awesome and i sort of you know wistfully go i'm glad you enjoyed it but i do i'm really proud of the book but yeah, it's you know it's in the rearview mirror now there's nothing i can really it, do about it,
0: it. uh you know, and not, not to, it's hard to wander into these topics without, you know, people starting to point fingers at others. So that's not my intent here, but it's, sure. uh, th- what you just described though is common. It's this, uh, we, we moved the, we moved something and then there wasn't, there was something missing in, in the marketing or the, the, it's like you, you mentioned. Why- we,
1: we, we fell on a, I had a rough divide. So my problem was, and this is, again, I don't think anyone's fault intentionally, uh, it was decided that they w- they were trying to, near the end of Axel's run as an, an editor-in-chief, right. from what I heard, they were trying to put the brakes on new number ones because it was getting overwhelming, right? right. And, yeah. you know, they had, they had pumped the brakes so many times on that stuff that no one was paying attention anymore to the same degree. I don't want <clears throat> to... So I came on on issue 19. That was... It was. It was. They were gonna. You know, like like when Donnie came on Thanos, it was just another issue of Thanos. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you got to try and build momentum on a nineteen, and it was like, whoo, okay, that's a rough prospect. Stop. But, I, but I will try. But I will try, right? And yeah. so we hunkered down, and those first few issues did better than people expected. We introduced that new um, uh, character, Snowguard, yep. the Canadian superhero. Sold out all across Canada. We had multiple printings on the book, and they were like, oh, this is. This is doing better than we thought. Right as my first issue is coming out, CB takes over as uh, editor-in-chief and they say, we're going to do this, what was it called? Um, Fresh Start Initiative, yeah. I think they called it. Yeah. Yeah. All these books are getting new number ones, right? Yeah. I'm on the wrong side of that divide. I've already got 19, yeah. 20, 21 coming out. So what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to kick a new number one? Yeah. And so we were doing really good coverage for a book that was 19, 20, 21. you know, that we were starting to win a couple people over and to their credit, they wanted to bring more eyeballs to it. So then they said, okay, we are doing a new number one. And it was like, Oh damn, how can you do something really big on a book to make it worth that number one? Yeah, and, and you, you so, weren't very many issues into it. I mean, you no, I mean, so- we, we had issued 20, well, we did that um, school shooting issue, 24.
0: Yeah, you were seven issues in, and they yeah. relaunched it, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and so, well, you know, the school shooting issue had a big press push, and then we had them go to Weird World, which was a pretty good push. And, like, we were getting momentum. I feel like we were doing some good stuff. The only way I could think of to justify a new number one, we ended up, I had, like, a two-, three-year plan. Mm -hmm. I looked at the end of year two and we were doing a Legion-esque kind of all the teen heroes. How many teen heroes can we pull from the past? How many new teen heroes can we generate in countries where there isn't a Marvel hero? Because that was another initiative that we had been talking about internally. And you saw that where they made that character, um, that South Asian character, Wave and like all these other ones, they were making these new characters. Some of them they were making for the mobile games and some of them they were making for, you know, Marvel was trying to make these new international heroes. And I said, I want champions to be a focal point for that. I'm going to make you new teen heroes every few five, six months, and we're going to make them cool. And we're going to put them in these new places and we'll get consultants in those places to make sure they feel genuine and it's going to be awesome. So we had this Legion esque kind of, you know, plan, but the only way I could think of to get a new number one was to kind of push the fast forward button and go, it's happening now. You know what mm-hmm. I mean like look at all these characters, and it was very ambitious, ridiculously ambitious because we were launching in a in January, which is not That's a good time to great launch number number one, yeah. and we had fifteen characters in the book <laughs> and, yeah. and we're like carrying the continuity of the previous run and a bunch of plot lines i really didn't want to let go of but trying to make it new reader friendly but trying to ignite new characters and trying to slam all this stuff together it was i mean you know it seems obvious it wasn't going to work but we were so hopeful and excited and and trying to push the ball forward in a way that I felt like we could do something really special and maybe it would be a little messy and it would be a bit of a, a, you know, a rough ride, but we could get that momentum off a new number one and prove to people that these kids were worth following. And, and the reviews we got were real mixed where people were like, there's too many characters. There's too much stuff. And other people were like, I liked it before. Why are you doing this? And other people were like, Oh, it's just Jim's continuing to torture these characters. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and so on and so forth. And and I couldn't disagree with some of what they were saying. I, you know, I felt it too. Like I felt the pressure and the there's too much going on. And and then we got injected into uh, War of the Realms and it's like, yeah. all right, got to juggle an event and we can do this, we can do this. And it was just like, it was wild. Like it was an intense, intense uh, a ride. And so I felt like we were still going to be able to ride it out as we were entering into war of the realms and then we had a plan originally to tie into the ultron stuff that dan was doing in iron man and so Mm -hmm. i had introduced a subplot at the end of our previous run where sparky visions dog was injected with like a a virus and he was going to help ultron and we were going to i was starting to co-write Iron Man with Dan Slott, and so we were like, we're all going to tie this together. It's going to be so cool. Uh, and then the the numbers just weren't there. Yeah. And so Tom called me up, and that Tom Brevoort has been in my corner for my entire, almost my entire Marvel career. And he always plays straight with me. And he was just like, it's not happening. Like we've got to yeah. we've got to shut her down. And I was heartbroken because I felt like that was a corner of the Marvel universe I could carve out. And I knew what little I know about the future of of the MCU. And, you know, there is a youthful push that's going to happen. It has to because those actors are aging out. You know what I mean? There's a reason why Ms. Marvel is in their radar. Why, you know, and Spider-Verse did so well and all these things. Because the thing that DC used to do in the 80s and 90s where they would have legacy characters, and Marvel never did that, now it's all inverted. You know what I mean? Like now, because mm-hmm. of the MCU, you have to hand off to this next set of actors and this next generation of heroes. And right. I'm like, I wanna be on the I wanna be on the, the spear tip of that. I wanna be generating cool new stuff for that. Because that five, ten years from now, that's gonna be the exciting new frontier that people are gonna be freaking out about. And what if I had a cool omnibus of look at all these cool youthful yeah. heroes and look yeah. at all things and so i felt like that was going to be my niche at marvel
0: it's it's tough though i think you know, you're running into so many things you mentioned uh having to cross over the event that's going to be a trick you know that what was going on with and the-
1: everyone with the best of intentions right like, yeah i don't feel like we didn't we no one was like trying to put the nail in this book it was just like it was just a rough ride. We were, you know, we were on the wrong side of a new editor in chief divide. We were trying yeah. to get this book out into as many places as possible. You know, we had this like, cr- you know, and it's a monthly book. The momentum is relentless. Yeah. So you, you plan and you plan and you plan. And then the plan gives way to reality. And you're like, okay, but but part of being a professional is rolling with it. Like, is yeah. being able to say, I will make the best of a, a crazy situation and still put out work that you're proud of, you know?
2: You, you, you'd mentioned the, the thing too about uh, the new number ones and all that. And, yeah. Uh, you know, Perch and I have talked about this before, and, and this has come up a lot that we're at a point where it seems like that's really diminished because there are so many number ones that come out now where you need to be informed with so much continuity that it doesn't really feel like you couldn't give a new number one to a new reader as like, yeah, here, it's, start it's here.
1: On the one hand, the books Mm. I loved growing up Mm. had deep, rich continuity, right? sure. And I never felt like I needed a number one to start reading, Mm -hmm. and I didn't have trade paperbacks. You just dropped into the middle of X-Men or into the middle of Avengers or Fantastic Four, and then you worked it out. And the little asterisks would come up, would say, back in issue 220, yeah this happened and if you grab that back issue great but otherwise you knew what the motivation was i, I think there's a different mentality now where people want to have a completest mindset mm-hmm. and i get that <clears throat> you can't really change people's habits to want to see well where's the start you're like of amazing spider-man you're like you know it's it's hard it's hard uh it's you know yeah. And it's not like manga where you can just look on the shelf and go volume one of Naruto and then just follow it all the way through or whatever. Like it's a very different publishing model and a very different system with hundreds of creators. Right. So. Yeah. yeah, It's yeah.
2: It's, it's done in that way. But, but like you were saying, like the habit used to be completely different. The habit sure. used to be exactly what you were saying. It used to be. It was to the publisher's detriment to put out a number one. They would come up with excuses to start four, like well into the run instead of. But you can't
1: just, you can't navel gaze and say, well, it was better in the 80s, so therefore we can't, we should try to do it like the 80s. Like, I get it. And I feel the pressures from all different sides. And you as a creator, when you come Mm -hmm. on a title, no one is clamoring and going, yeah, can I have number 19? Like, sure. Not because. I don't, I care about it on a, you know, I'm writing Conan the Barbarian right now. Mm-hmm, sure. To me, if you look on my bio on my website, mm-hmm. I don't even write the, the the number. I write the legacy number. Right. Because mm-hmm. in my head, that's what matters. On my Avengers yeah. books, on my Iron Man stuff, I co-wrote with Dan. I am the big dweeb that has the legacy number because to me, that's the real number. Sure. But to the retailer and to the reader... It's something else,
2: well, right? but but there seems to be evidence that like retailers aren't even into that, and and a lot of fans because it ends up getting
1: confusing until they are though, yeah. like you, for every example of a of sure. a book that, you know, I feel like yeah, there's definitely diminishing returns on mm-hmm. on hitting the reset button over and over again on the same title, mm-hmm. but there are definitely examples where you generate hype and you go, this is a clear clean jumping on point is if you're smart about it i think it's to
0: market i, I think mm-hmm. and, and so i think that's what's going on is that it, it is it is a little bit easier in a world of a lot of titles being pushed out and one of the things you know joan i've also talked about a lot is you know you're 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 pumping out in some cases like 80 books a month and yes. so, and, and so your attention is going to be split your staff is small and so some of these these things become it's, it's easier to wrap your head around a number one yeah. but we are I think we're entering this new era or this new phase you mentioned the 80s and by the way part of the reason why that worked is because you had the newsstand and there it was just yeah right, right. not the same way today mm-hmm. right and then I think we had a phase where the number ones and some of these relaunches were helpful it was it was people are catching on it feels like a couple of years ago we entered into this this third world where it's kind of this messy mix of the two
1: <laughs> yeah I feel like the the problem is is that you don't you can't divorce yourself from the legacy of the books but equal because it's one of your strengths of these shared universes but yeah. on the other hand you need you know this this ability to give people a ground floor entry way yeah. into it. Yeah. And so how do you do that, right? And it's yeah. different for each creative team, you know. Some of the creative teams jettison a lot of that stuff. Some of them give little nods to it, and some of them just go, "Man, it's basically another issue. Like it's just same as it ever was." And and, yeah. you know, as a reader and as a huge fan of the shared experiment of the Marvel Universe, I love continuity, and I love doing right by it. You know, I reference a lot of old storylines in my comics. When I wrote Uncanny Avengers, I would love to dig, find these little synergies of the past and bring them back up. You know, there's (laughs) an issue where Wonder Man and the Beast are sitting around an Irish pub kind of lamenting over their messed up careers. And you have all that classic kind of montage of all their stupidity of decades worth of books. And to a certain reader that might, push them away but to me the, i love that stuff and it feels very warm to know you that know. things have happened before and things are continuing to happen to these characters but you you need mm-hmm. to strike a balance and never give people so little information that they can't understand their current motivations
2: yeah it, some a- of that it, it got to be in like the the marketing of this <clears throat> too though because i mean like i've never met anyone who picked up the uh, first trade of like Frank Miller's Daredevil omnibus, and went or um, trades are just like oh, this starts at one fifty eight. I can't read this. I got to read sure. one, f- <laughs> one to one fifty seven. No one goes. Oh, Grant Morrison's X Men starts at one fourteen. I right. can't read this. So there, there's got to be a combination of, of these things. I mean, hush, undeniable mega seller in trade right, and right. when it was coming out, sure. Like there, it seems like there part of the problem might be too many things are being tried out at once, so it's hard to determine which one's working and which one isn't.
1: Yeah, there's a lot, you know. And part of it's your trade paperback program and your branding. Yeah. Part sure. of it is advertising. Part of it is is making. You know, the problem with putting out so many books <clears throat> yeah. is that it's so much signal to noise ratio, right? Yes. When you're trying, what is the one, you know, we talked about this at, at when I was doing um, Wayward So I did in twenty fourteen I launched a creator owned book called Wayward. We ended up doing thirty issues, six trade paperbacks. The book has continued to sell very well in trade. Excellent
0: series, by the way. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks,
1: thanks. In single Mm -hmm. issues, it did really well, you know, until we hit that crest off point where you've just got so much like we have more trade readers overall, but yeah, you know, Single issues, we still did well through almost the entire run. You know, near the end, of course, your numbers are dwindling, but you're also coming to the end, and people are picking up trades and hardcovers and the whole 10 yards. But um, with that book and in and around it, one of the discussions was, and it sounds really corny, like there can only be, at that point in time, it felt like one or two Image hot books a month. But if Image was putting out six books, four of those are going to fall in the dust.
0: Right, right, And so
1: you're trying to negotiate this weird sort of thing of like, I want to be this week's hot book from Image. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? There's only going to be two of them in a month. I need to be one of them, right? And of course, everyone wants to be that one. But you're sort of like, when I looked at the schedule and I was sort of like, okay, I'm going to be at this convention. We're going to launch on that weekend. So I can make that a big deal. I can work with the convention to get a convention exclusive. So now I've got a bunch of extra eyeballs on it. And I can, we're at the end of con season. They've already kind of blew their load on all these other cool books. I can mm-hmm. come in, like split the difference between the, the summer and the fall. You know, I'm thinking about this as marketing. I'm thinking about this as, as hype and all this other mm-hmm. kind of stuff because I believe in the book and because I know what's there. And then you magnify that dozens of times for Marvel, right? Because yeah. it's not just two books a month. It's 20 launches or 20 number ones or whatever. And it, it, you're just it's relentless right yeah and and every creative team wants to be on the crest of one of those cool announcements one of those amazing releases one of those you know but you also don't want to poise them off against each other like you're trying to find little spaces for everyone to breathe you know a lot of in i mean <laughs> I, I also, and I mean no
0: uh, no disrespect to any anyone else who's working in the industry, but I, I mean, just listening to you talk and reading your blogs, you you do think through many of these aspects.
1: I try to, but you've got to keep in mind, you know, that's only on my creator-owned books. Sure. So yeah. if I'm doing a book at Marvel or IDW or, you I mean, t- or anywhere else, yeah, I, I'm working with other people and I'm saying, here's what I think. This doesn't mean my advice is the right answer, but here's, here's what I think. So you can say to the powers that be, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think launching this way or relaunching is going to work, but at the end of the day, I will follow you because you're the guy's signing the checks. And you know, you also know more, you've been doing this longer than I have. I have to trust at some point that it's going to, that it's going to work. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't.
0: Yeah. I think uh, it, there's no one piece of advice I know that works for everyone. There's sure. different scenarios. The world's always shifting and everything else. But um, you're thinking through the problem. And I, I mm-hmm. got not I've talked to enough other creators who um, it's like a revelation. Either when I show them your your blog or we talk through some of these things, it's like I hadn't thought about it that way before. And it's the thought process. More More the thought process than the answers.
1: And I think the willingness to talk about it. I think some creators, they want to be siloed. Like if you're Mm -hmm. a writer, they just tell me when the script is due. And you're like, dude, that's cool. But your job, you have to know what the artist's job is in order to be an effective writer. You have to yeah. know what the letterer's job is to be an effective writer. You have to know what the editor's job is. One of the reasons I think I keep getting hired, and I'm not saying this to puff myself up. Yeah. I'm just being as, as honest as possible. I have been an editor and an assistant at Udon. I knew how much of a pain in the ass that was. Yes. And so if I can make your job easier, you will want to work with me again.
0: Right, right. Something
1: as simple as organizing yeah. the reference properly or you know, I would be doing a monthly book <clears throat> and as soon as I got the first deadline for solicits, some editors want you to write the solicits, some don't. Every editor is a little different. <laughs> as soon as you would give me a date that says on this Friday I need the solicit text, I put in my Google Calendar every month an alert two days before that that says they're going to want solicit text. So I would send solicit text ahead of time and the editor would go, my God, I did not even ask you for it yet. Yeah. And I go, yeah, but it's a monthly book, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how it works. Right. Like, yeah, but, absolutely. But I mean, that little, I just saved two emails back and forth. Yes. Guess who gets thought of fondly. Do you know what I mean? No, or, I or you been. tell me, Hey, there's an event coming up, you know, tie in books, send me all the documentation. And in the documentation, it tells me some obscure piece of character continuity. I go research it. And then I come back and I say, you know what? You could do this. And they're like, oh, you did the homework. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, man. Because A, I love this stuff. And B, mm-hmm. I want to. So if you read um, Mystery and Madripoor, that was the Hunt for Wolverine Miniseries, I did. Yep. That was like my love letter to Claremontian kind of caper stories. Yep. It's got, it's got madripoor in it. It's got all this weird kind of noirish stuff and double crosses and psychic battles and and lusty characters wanting each other. Like it's, it is and me he was trying good. to be Chris Claremont yep. as much as possible while still being me. And I'm really proud of that book. And then we had the added bonus of, um, the, the editorial came to us and said, each of these miniseries for Hunt for Wolverine should have some sort of surprise. <clears throat> what is it? You tell us. And it was like, <laughs> okay. And so I threw out the long bomb and I said, I want to put Betsy back in her British body. And the f- first thing we got was, oh, hell no. Like, we're not touching that with a 10 foot pole. That is just a, that's a, that's a third rail. That's electric. You're going to, it's going to be, go over badly. And I was like, no, there's a way to do it. And I just kept throwing ideas. And, you know, the thing that the Brevor talked about with like Winter Soldier where Brubaker brought the idea of let's bring Bucky back. And he says, oh, hell no, you can't do that because this, this, this. And then Brubaker slowly figured out how to fill in all those holes. Mm -hmm. And so they said, you can't do that with Betsy because this, this, this. And I said, ah, but. And then we just slowly kind of shuffled the board until it worked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, And so I feel like that book is in some ways, I wouldn't, you know, it can be a bit of a hard read if you're not a a long loved X-Men fan, but I also feel like everyone's motivations are really clear. Mm -hmm. This character wants this and this character is opposed by that. And they, you know, got to stop them. So there's like an A plot that's very basic. And then the the, the B is emotionally all this other, all these other pieces flying around and old loyalties and, trust and distrust, you know, I I mean, it was
0: received received very well. It was, it was was. during this awkward time in the X-Men where, you know, there was, there was very mixed messages going out to the market. in general,
1: Right. Well, because, you know, behind the scenes, obviously Hickman was, was working away at things. What was funny was now, you know, people will message me and they'll be like, why did you, (laughs) I had people conspiracy, you know, conspiracizing around it where they would say, why did you carry water for that storyline? Like, why would you enter that snake pit of, of trying to fix Betsy, you yeah. know? And I was like, no, I came up, I thought it was cool. And they're like, no, that must have been a top-down decision. No, no, that was me just excitedly telling them what I thought would be a cool payoff. And now they've carried it forward and done what Marvel's supposed to do, where you carry the baton for a while. And then I handed someone else and they said, you know what, she should be Captain Britain. And I'm like, that's, I mean, go for it. If you can make it work, you're the next part in the chain. Hopefully it works out for you, you know? And if at some point they say, here's the baton back, what would you do? Then I got to incorporate Captain Britain or whatever else and and take it to the next place. That's how it used to work, I feel like you know yeah
2: yeah Yeah. you you know speaking of uh how how things used to work i i want to kind of keep jumping around uh you you were coming up at image you know with skull kickers and all that at a time where it seemed like and i know this isn't like everyone's experience but for for the most part it seemed like people were coming up an image for a lot of the reasons you mentioned walking dead. These number ones were blowing up and getting creators like you attention. Yeah. You you had other people, I think like, you know, around then within a few years, like Michael Marici, uh, Justin Jordan, Uh kind of Joshua Williamson on like the tail end of that.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And
2: then. And then the new
1: 52 happened and a bunch of people got snapped up there.
2: (laughs) You you, you had this kind of, it almost felt like, image around them was starting career like like starting people that went to the big two and now by the mid 2010s to now for the most part there's obvious um people like you know Johnny cates and stuff that this doesn't apply to but it seemed like it's almost the other way that it's like people like you know rick remender built a big audience and then took it Uh, you know, Ed Brubaker built a big audience and took it to image. And and so like, since you were like, you know, on the ground floor for, for all that stuff, like, do you have any insights into like, what was going on and what kind of made that sea change, uh, happen? I mean,
1: I feel like, you know, it. There are still lots of exciting opportunities at the big two to be able to make things and to be able to do things. And I think people go into those relationships, work for hire relationships, with a lot of preconceived notions. Yeah. And I can't say I have none because that would be a lie. But because I've been involved with the corporate stuff, thanks to Udon and all that, much earlier. I I've got my eyes I think a little bit wider open where it's like I'm not expecting a gold pocket watch and you know all that kind of stuff like like I love doing the books I really do I love working on these characters and these worlds that have meant so much to me mm-hmm. but I also know that that cannot be the sum totality of what I'm going to be creating and that I have no ownership of those things so I have to keep my foot in this other you know, in creator owned. And I feel like people, I, I think it's getting better now, but people have this weird mental stigma. Like you are the corporate stooge or you are Mm -hmm. this independent go get them, you know, give the middle finger to the, to the, to the businesses and off you go. And it's like, no, that's not it. Like it's, it's, it's about, you know, making choices that work for you and making the books that you're, you know, and I can be proud of a book in either realm. I just know which ones I get final decision on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, You know, and, and if you're careful about it, Tom said something in one of his editorial YouTube videos recently, he was talking about working with freelancers and all this. And I the wording is going to be off because I didn't commit it perfectly to memory, but something sure. to the gist of he says, you know, we are benefiting from the creative work of these people and they are benefiting from the broad brand that we mm-hmm. represent. And that is what it is, right? From now on, the word Avengers and Conan the Barbarian and Iron Man are associated with my name if I choose to use it, yeah. right? I can't claim I created those things, but I am now involved in the legacy of those things. And that opens doors for me. That provides opportunities for me. Is it commensurate with, you know, if Marvel takes a character that I created and makes a billion dollars, would I like some of that? Sure, absolutely. I would be stupid to say otherwise. But on the other hand, I can now pitch a any comic publisher in North America and they will return my calls pretty quickly, you know what I mean? That isn't to say roll out the red carpet every single time, but like I get, we, we're we going to talk and we're going to figure this thing out and it's in their best interest to listen to my idea and figure out if this is going to be a good fit or not, you know? Yeah, it's and good. if I go to an artist and I say, hey, your work is amazing, we should do a book together I can tell you with 90% accuracy, this thing's getting published. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. going to happen. It's really incumbent on us to make the thing, not is there a home for it? You
0: know? It's it's definitely a benefit. I mean, and and Sean Murphy's mentioned the same thing. Obviously, yeah. you know, he he's a people are asking all the time when you do your own thing, do you, do you hate working for the corporation, sure. et cetera? And it's like, again, I'm also paraphrasing, but it's, you know, Batman, put them on the map. Right. I don't know. You,
1: work for, you, you work for Marvel, but you work for people, right? Absolutely. And within that company, there are editors that I have gotten along phenomenally well with. I can't actually say I've had terrible interactions with any editor there. There are some that I think I sync up better with. Sure. Mm-hmm. That our working methodology. I'm like, oh, you get me. Okay, this can yeah. go real well. And Tom's one of those people. Mark Basso in the Conan office is one of those people. Like, we just we sync up really, really well. Yeah. Some yeah. of them I haven't had a chance to work with yet, and i like, I would like to find out if we've got a good same thing at DC. Like, you know, I'm sh- I would love to work with whatever you know Ben Abernathy or or whoever. Like, mm-hmm. those are people that I feel like, oh, I've gotten along well with them at a convention, hanging out, chatting over beers, it would be cool to see what, what we could build. You know what I mean? But but you just don't know. But you you need to go into it with the understanding that you're working with people and those people have goals in and around a corporate structure and all that sort of thing. And if I, my job, I'm going to try and big picture. This Mm
2: -hmm.
1: is to communicate, to entertain, right? Right. Part of that is including communicating with editorial. If I get Tom Brevor on board my idea and he believes it's the right idea, the field opens up. The thing will happen. Yeah. If I'm yeah. not communicating well enough or or entertaining him, I know that sounds weird, but like proving to him that this could work, then I got to go back and retool it or I've got to, you know, or they're going to hire someone who's a bigger name or whatever. Like, and you need to kind of get that in your head yeah. instead of getting a chip on your shoulder and getting super angry and being like, why won't they give me Wolverine? It's like, why should they give you Wolverine? Yeah. Yeah. Why, why you instead of someone else? And that's not to say that their decision making is flawless or no. they're always going to pick the perfect team, but you need to convince them in a way that makes perfect sense that they're like, yeah, man, Donnie Cates is the guy. You got to give him the next big book. Look at the numbers, look at the fan excitement, look at the, you know, whatever it might be, or Josh Williamson or, you know, pick sure. a, pick a creator, Becky Cloonan, like mm-hmm. whatever. Right. I, I love it. And for a lot of people who,
0: who listen and I, I know, and, and we're not going to get into it, but the, the, this kind of angst that comes with a lot of the customers and the fans, like why, why aren't they like me? I, I mean, there's this, there's this, 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 you know, there's this debate that goes on. Sure. Um, but what you just described, I think everyone can relate to. If you've got a job, whatever right. that job is, being able to communicate where you're coming from, being able to get trust from management, being able to, to yep. prove yourself.
1: And that's not instantaneous. No, no. Right. You just don't walk in the door with that. I explained it to a friend of mine who's just starting to get big two work now. Right. <clears throat> and I said, you have to think of it like building up creative credit and then spending it. So yeah. I build up credit with the editors that I work with, trust and reliability and all those things. And then every so often, not that I intend to do this, there comes a time where you need to spend it. Where you say, so I had, I can't say the exact book. Uh, they wanted to put a cover artist on a book I was doing. I do not like that person's art. And I feel like it would be a detriment to the sales of the book. Mm-hmm, for sure. And yes, that person has an audience, but I couldn't, I couldn't round it. Like in my head, it wasn't happening. And it's like, I have been a good soldier. I have done all the proper things. I have delivered the goods and I And I knew this was not something I wanted over email, (laughs) call up the editor and have a heart-to-heart conversation go, I can't, I can't, like, can we we not do this? Please, please, please. And they were surprised because I don't tend to cause a lot of waves. But it's like, I built up the credit. I built up the trust. I'm telling you, this is not going to work for these reasons. And every time I social media and I have to put this person's cover, I'm going to be wincing. I don't Mm want to do this. Yeah. And they were like, well, you really feel that strongly about it. I'm like, I really feel that strongly about it now. Okay. Let's not do it. And you it's laid like, out your case right. in a professional way. And, and I got, but, asked I, you but after I do that, yeah. I can't, I can't have another ask next week. You know, right. I can't yeah, just turn around absolutely. and go, you know what else you should do? You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, like, that's just not how it's going to work.
0: But, you know? So I, I'm, so I, I think I already know the answer, but, but, uh, so the other side of this, let's say you, you called up professionally you gave all these things to your editor
2: right. and then it was like, hmm,
0: I hear your case, but right. it's important to it. We're going to do it anyway. Right. It's,
1: it's a done deal.
0: It's yeah. a done deal. Now at that point, I'm assuming you take social media, throw a tantrum, you burn <laughs> on day. Yeah, you just got, right got to, yeah,
1: you, just gotta, you, get, you know, you, you, uh, you got to eat shit. Like you just sort of go, okay. Like, you know, the difference, of course, being the part that I control the story, you know, I still control. I still control right. what's between those covers. I still know what's going to be, you know, when yeah. that letter proof comes through, that's what I have control over. You know what I mean? And so there are times when there there is a book that I did. Early on in my career at Marvel, and I was not thrilled with the art. And when we had a fill in artist, our reviews jumped up, and people mm-hmm. were like, now the book's coming together this writing's no longer sucky and it's like dude it's the exact same scripts it's the exact same story but the, the artist has such a huge role to play in how you perceive that story Absolutely. and a line of dialogue that may seem really corny is going to seem really sincere if there's a beautiful chunk of art or vice versa mm-hmm. something that seems real you know and you you can't control some of that you know yeah. and 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 so you have to I I can't throw my artist under the bus publicly. That's insane. Right. But on the other hand, it's like internally, I know what I have control over and what I don't have control over. And sometimes editorial can see it too. And there were people that were going to bat for me and being like, yeah, you know, this book's a real rough ride, but that's not Jim. You know, Jim's good. Let's put him on something bigger, better. You know, let's do this. Right. And, and again, you know, someone like Tom Brevoort, who's been in my corner You know, I get put on on uh, Avengers, and then we do No Surrender, that weekly book. Mm -hmm. Like, what an incredible opportunity! We get sixteen weekly issues. It goes over really well. You know, Pepe Larraz is coming into his own, uh, and and he explodes on that book. We got just just like a murderer's row of talent on it, and I get to work with Al Ewing and Mark Wade, Mm -hmm. and we build this elaborate crazy epic avengers story well what what is what is my background i'm a project manager so one of the things i knew was got a weekly book is a nightmare we have to front load so much stuff and so i kind of grabbed hold of a bunch of it and said okay we need to structure this like crazy um you know and and uh, we had gone and done an in-person summit at the marvel office it was an amazing experience one of my favorite creative experiences ever uh We go back home and everyone's a little bit paralyzed because no one knows how to start. Mm -hmm. And I, and I called up Tom and I said, I don't want to like hunker down on Al and Mark and tell them how to do their job. But I think no one knows how to start page one, panel one. Like everyone else is waiting for someone else to grab the steering wheel. Can I do a pacing breakdown? We have this many pages. I think 30 pages in the first issue here's based on our outline that is approved here's how many pages I think each of these scenes take, and then everyone can tear it apart and rearrange it. Nice. And Tom goes, I would really appreciate that. <laughs> 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 That's going to earn you so much credit. Right. With so I paste that one, and I sent it to the gang, and Mark responds with, looks good, I'll do my scenes. Okay. And I was like, what? I thought we were going to like back and forth it. And Mark was like, no, I don't see any problems. The page turns all make sense, and that scene seems like enough panels for me to do what I need to do. And and you picked it based on characters we were writing. So the lead character in that scene is mine. So clearly it's a scene I should write. And so out of those sixteen issues, I paste 13 of them. Mm-hmm. So if you like no surrender, it's my fault. And if you hate no surrender, it's my fault. <laughs>
0: right?
1: So so you know, and that was our working methodology on the book. Most of the issues I pasted out. And then everyone sort of broke it down and said, okay, these scenes make sense. Every so often they would say, I need an extra page or can we steal from Peter to pay Paul, you know, or whatever. And we got it worked out. But for the most part, the book is, it's, it's sort of like a Jim sub paced book. Like this is based on our outline. And then it went so well, we, we wrote 15 of those 16 issues, two weeks an issue, two weeks an issue. We had a huge lead time on the book. And when it was all done, we were heading into the final issue and it was our epilogue issue. The big payoff of the story is in actually part 15, but mm-hmm. we had so many plot lines We needed to sort of send people off to the series they were going to be doing next because Jason was launching Avengers, right. the number one, all of our characters were diffusing out to a bunch of other places or in some cases going into limbo. And so we wanted to give them a little, you know, and long, like we wanted to finish it out. So we had a whole issue for the epilogue and, um, I looked at the epilogue and I actually got a little choked up and I said, I don't think I can get this done in two weeks. I need more time with it because this might be my last chance to write the Avengers. And, and Tom was like, well, I I'll tell you a little secret. I assumed you guys were going to be late for a bunch of this. We have nine extra weeks on the schedule (laughs) that you didn't use. Yeah. I can give you an extra week. Oh man. And it was like the best compliment. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and the day that part sixteen came out, uh, we got real amazing congratulations from everyone on the Marvel team, and we got a letter from Dan Buckley that included a pack of cards. I've got here by my desk. Uh, so this is you can't see this on camera, unfortunately, because but this is a set of cards that they printed for us. Everyone on the creative team got a grandmaster deck. Oh, wow, that's that awesome. only the creative teams have. Uh, and it's uh, with this letter from Dan Buckley that says, you guys are upholding the Marvel universe and all this stuff. And the day that issue came out, Tom sent an email around and goes, you guys want to do it again? And we started planning what would be no road home like a month later. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's some awesome. I don't remember hearing a lot of this story. This is some awesome. Yeah, movie. it was so cool. It was one of the best creative experiences I've ever had. It was just everyone was in sync, and we all knew what we wanted to do, and we were all so passionate about the characters, you know. And I have like a dozen stories of just the summit sitting around the table and mm-hmm. and shooting the shit and making jokes and building up trust with each other. You yeah, know? yeah, it cool. was so cool.
0: I want to be. I want to be very respectful of your time because uh, I said we'd do about an hour, and we're way over that. So sure. I um But if you have, do you have time for like one more question? Then I, I yeah. feel like I'm going to have to bribe you to talk to you again sometime. Yeah,
1: I feel like because part of the problem is we were sort of moving in a logical order of here's my career, and yeah. then we just leapfrog deep into the superhero end of things. But yes. it's been cool because. There's also yeah. some great stories. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, this is when people listen to the, this is what they they like to have just a free flooring conversation. So it's, yeah.
1: Kind of yeah. yeah. And I feel like there is thematically some stuff carrying through, even if we're oh, yeah. tripping, tripping through time, where if someone yeah. looks at, at a calendar, they're going to be like, okay, they were here and now they're here. Like, <laughs> okay. No, like, it's, it's. How did he get to Avengers from Skull Kickers? What just <laughs> happened?
0: I think what's the, the 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 theme that i mean hopefully the people who are listening uh, pick up on is just this creation of comics I, there's just so many misconceptions about mm-hmm. how it's done what's going on and we're yeah. hearing uh a lot of different pieces here i i, I wanted to ask about wayward self because sure. hey. i love that series it is well, I, more, I do too you know again no offense to anything else you've done it is my well,
1: it means a lot to me um working stephen cummings is another guy that i work with at udon Uh, We worked very closely there on on dozens of projects over at Udon. We built up a really good friendship and he lives in Japan. He lives in Yokohama. Uh, He's married. He's got kids like that. You know, that's his life is Japan. And so um, we had put together, and this ties back into that sort of creative neuroses, like I want to make stuff. One of the books that we put together at Udon is this kind of obscure book called Vent. And -hmm. it was, called vent because we're all venting our creative ideas. So the book is filled with a bunch of tutorials and pinups and little short stories. It's just us all being creative and everything is creator owned and we're just jamming a bunch of ideas. And I did a, cause my background's in art and animation. I did a pinup in there for a kind of a YA graphic novel. I still want to do someday that I've never done. And Steven did a pinup of That girl, Ayane, standing at the top of the stairs with all the cats looking at you, that very, very iconic cover for Wayward Number 1. But it wasn't called Wayward, and that character didn't have a name. It was just a really cool pinup. And I I looked at him. I saw it come in because I was the editor on that book because I was organizing all of our creative ideas. And what I wanted to do was use that book as a launching platform to convince Eric, the owner of Udon, look at all this cool stuff. Let's make all of it. selfishly including Mm. mine right Mm -hmm. and and steven had that pinup and i thought it was the coolest thing ever and uh i just told him how great it looked it was just black and white it wasn't even colored and um you know we didn't end up making any of that stuff from that book but years later i do skull kickers skull kickers is doing well i'm getting a name as a writer i start doing Work for Hire Writing for Dynamite. I did the Pathfinder comic based on the tabletop role playing game. That proved to people I could deliver on team books and that I was monthly. And right around that time, I think maybe a little bit later, um, Steven was wrapping up some stuff at Udon and he's like, Man, I love doing this work for Eric, but I need to do creator own stuff. How did you make the jump? And I was like, I just, you know, this lucky opportunity of popgun and all this stuff. But I just start making stuff. And I said, whatever happened to that concept you wanted to do? Did you ever make anything for it? He's like, no. He said, but I want to do like Japanese ghost stories. I want to do like yeah. stories in Tokyo. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, because in Tokyo doesn't look like how you see it in the movies, and it doesn't look like how you see it in 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 even in manga sometimes it's it's all really hokey and corny and it's really bad in North American comics. Like it's just, it's like ninjas and temples mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, or it's Akihabara and, and neon. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, those are tiny slivers of Japan, but they're not the real Japan. Right. And at the same time I was working on a fantasy story. <laughs> I was generating ideas for this modern supernatural story that was like, what if, the heroes of old were now, which has been done a, a million times, but I was like, I wanted to put a different kind of spin on it. I wanted to really dig down in some of the ecology of, like if there's a unicorn running around modern day, how does it stay hidden and all this sort of stuff? And I realized that that idea would be really hokey if we did European supernatural, mm-hmm. the, the Germanic and all the stuff that you've seen a hundred times, a basilisk and a dragon and all that crap. But what hadn't been done extensively was yokai right and i was like you know steve i kind of got a thing that is real amorphous right now really vague and you've got a thing and i think we just bring those together and there's something here and originally um we just started jamming character ideas we just started coming up with like if these were the new mutants or the x-men but they had powers that felt very different from what you see you know and that's where we started coming up with the different characters and how their powers worked and then i started tying them back into the yokai stuff and then we i just started deep diving on research really hardcore and and kind of building out the world and building out the characters and how does their power exemplify their foibles and you know your classic kind of stuff but in the in the context of japan and Stephen and i would jump on these calls and just talk for hours about Stuff about about the city and about neighborhoods, and I had traveled to Japan multiple times with Eric from Udon when we were negotiating deals with Capcom or Konami or other companies. We went to to the Tokyo Video Game Conference one year, and it was Mm -hmm. mind blowing. Like I had been to Japan multiple times, and I had watched tons of anime and manga, but it was like we got to get past the veneer. I want to try and find something richer. And and we just struck gold with it like we I could feel that we had something really special. Mm -hmm. And so I put together that pitch. And there is no way for me to say this without sounding like a cocky bastard. (laughs) I got almost every publisher I sent that pitch to we got a will you publish it here. So I got contracts from almost every creator-owned publisher in North America, and I got to sit down with them side by side and compare them.
0: Uh, that's that's rare, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. Like you name, you know, a publisher, they were interested in it. It like it felt like a Hollywood thing where you take it around town. Yeah. Because Stevens, that pinup was so evocative, and his designs were so good, and this idea of. I mean, kids love anime and it was like X-Men in Japan. Like it was, you know, the new mutants in Japan. Like it was, it was really Buffy in Japan. Like that was, these were the things that we were talking about. And all of a sudden it was like, yeah, we had, we had the tiger by the tail. We could do what we wanted. And I looked at all the contracts and Image still had the best deal in town. And so I ended up contacting Eric and just saying, we want to do it at, at Image. And he was like, when do you start like that? You know, what do you need from us? And that gave us the ability to, for example, like I talked about before, leverage when we were launching, or, you know, incentive stuff, or advertising, or allowed us to be able to pick our battles a little bit better, mm-hmm. and make the book the exactly the way we wanted to make it.
0: It's a it's a great book. It's one that um, I, I just isn't known enough. I, I think right. in this current. Um, world of manga getting kind of this new rise of popularity in the west i mean this is something you ought to check yeah. out if you haven't seen it i'll tell you something i don't know if you know this or not uh but uh i, I know for a fact that uh, I, i'm visiting one of the very large game companies in japan um there were copies of wayward in these companies oh, uh, they we're using in particular uh, najima-san who was the story writer for uh, final fantasy 15. amazing
1: that's very, very cool, cool. Yeah, That is very cool. Yeah, you know, we went to Japan and did a bunch of promotion over there. One of the things I did that is still, you know, Stephen put together a doujinshi and sold it at Comiket, yeah. uh, which was gargantuan, crazy, you know. Yeah, um, we, yeah it, it's it, we actually did really well with it. Like, even though there's never been a formal Japanese release, we have a bit of a cult kind of status over there, which is really fun. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been printed in multiple languages now, but Japanese weirdly isn't, isn't one of them yet. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, really, really proud of the book. And Stephen and I really learned a lot. And it's the, the best kind of creator on project where you're being indulgent about something you're passionate about and it comes through in the energy on the page and it proves some of like you, you enhance your skills because of it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? That's what a good creator on books should do. It's an unfettered ability for you to make choices that oh, will yeah. make you a better creator. And then ideally you bring those things you've learned to everything else you do. You know,
0: it's, it's it, a great book. Um, again, Jim, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time, but uh, no you, worries. Uh,
1: we didn't of- even touch on D&D. That's the craziest part of all.
2: I can't believe it. We started, uh, we had another interview where we started with D&D right. uh, recently, and I, I had meant to bring it up, but there, there were so many things I, I didn't even get a chance, and I was like, oh, I got to ask that, and then,
1: like, we we're going we to talk, talk to Conan. It's crazy. Can we get you on again? Can we talk to yeah. you again at some point in the yeah, future? Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. Because I, I, be. I feel like I've done a lot of interviews, but we've talked about some stuff particular times in my career that generally I haven't yeah. like the webcomic stuff. I, I usually don't talk very much about.
0: No, it's, yeah. it's, it's wonderful. Well, there's so much more to do. And, and I, I think it getting people more understanding is what I, what I try and do and fail half the time. So please so just yeah. look at your website. You'll get the,
1: you know, the, Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate the enthusiasm and yeah. uh, you know, the readers genuinely make this such a joy. Uh, I know there's there can be animosity about the stuff. I haven't seen very much of that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, the vast majority of the interactions I have with people is wonderful. And, and one of the things I've said to even other professionals, they get super angry when people get angry at them. I said, okay. you know why they're angry, right? Because they're passionate, because they care so much about okay. these characters. And, and that doesn't mean that their opinion is right or your opinion is right. It just means... Man, remember when no one was paying attention to your stuff? <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> like, exactly. I'm not saying therefore take all the arrows. There are definitely times where people go over the line. Absolutely. But, but, but man, they're paying attention. Like they really care. They really like, you know, when people were slinging mud at me about some of the, the stuff I was doing to some of the champions and I, I had to occasionally, you know, take a step back and go, they love those kids. And I do too. And I need to prove to them why they need to keep reading yep. you know what i mean yeah. and that's part of the job so it, it
0: yeah. is yeah
2: <laughs> jim thank you so much and joe no, thank fun. you for, yeah thank I you i listening. guess the next one will have to be a sword and sorcery focused with yeah, just, and we're, we're we have yeah. to part to it absolutely uh,
0: so thank you everybody for listening and and uh and, and yeah we'll talk to you soon next yeah. week